lost deep in the pages of your Bible are the books that are unmentioned, unheard of, and unread. They are the forgotten books of the Bible. Hey, welcome to your Church Friends Podcast. I'm Chris. I'm Yurdu. So you got a little bit of a different thing going on today, and it's throwing me off. What I do now? Yeah. You, I, I think I said this last time, but you always say stuff, and I have no idea what you're referencing <laughs> ever. What did I do today? The contacts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're going to have to change our whole logo and everything. Oh, no. You're wearing your glasses. I know, but I wasn't supposed to be the glasses guy. You were the glasses guy. I was the eggs guy because I have the chickens and... Which we haven't even like talked about since like season one. So it's been like two years since we talked about like that's the thing. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. I guess you graduated. You're no longer that guy. You're the contacts guy now. I was going to say you keep killing your chickens, but. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Farm life. It's farm life. Don't keep that. Anyways, next. <laughs> like, I don't want to start the show. <laughs> start the show very badly. Jeez. Uh, we were, yeah, I have we contacts. Sure, let's go. With, <laughs> let's go. With I did a thing. We were talking about, uh, uh, so we're going to set up our studio, move it to uh, your new house that you're at in the garage. And I, it made me laugh, so I thought I wanted to bring it here. But we were talking about like soundproofing the room. And you're telling me about the panels and everything. So there's one inch, two inch. Or more. Or yeah. more, yeah. And then uh, I, I said, well, we could just do the blankets, right? And mm-hmm. we could put those up. And you're like, well, we could get some like Eastern Orthodox blankets and put those up. So it looks like, you know, that. And I was like... Or we could get like do the Baptist thing and have stained glass blankets, and then we could just or we could just do all denominational type blankets all around. We can get Lutheran ones and have beer blankets. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll be a fun time. But uh, none of that's actually leading into what we're talking about. What we got going on today is a lot. So, do you understand why last time I was like, "Oh, Jude," and I was already like, "Yeah, in yeah. It. it's a good book." Oh no, yeah, I remember that. So our, the last episode when we did Haggai, which was really great, uh, maybe because you weren't prepared for it, uh, but... I feel like I was in a different mode last episode. <laughs> I don't know what was happening. But yeah, you studied for Jude. I was like, we're doing Haggai. I also studied for Haggai. I really like Haggai as well, as I said multiple times. Yeah, so. it, is a, it is one of my favorite books. And But now it seems like Jude has become one of them. And here's why. So as a conspiracy theorist kind of person that naturally goes into that realm, um, my favorite one of all time is Bigfoot. It has to be like, where's this giant ape man at? And why do some people see him and not? Anyways, uh, when I was studying Jude, it was just like, ooh, there's this, there's that, there's this, there's that. And it took me down all these different rabbit holes and all these different places and looking at the Testament of Moses and the Book of Enoch and all these fun other little things that we'll get into and talk about. But it triggered all that. And I feel like that's why... I really enjoy this book. It was more like you have to do a little bit of study to know it. You know what's great though? Is that that only applies for now? Because when Jude wrote this, he wasn't like, hey guys, this oh, conspiracy, yeah. <laughs> whatever. We're trying to figure out what is this Testament of Moses or the Ascension or Assumption of Moses. I think those are two different documents. And you know, other things, Book of Enoch and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, we're like, oh my gosh, those as We've seen on our Facebook page, people are like, those are the real forgotten books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, no, those were the lost ones. These yeah. ones just forgot, forgotten. But yeah, it wasn't conspiracy for them. He was quoting stuff that everyone knew about. Yeah. But for us, it is very far removed, and especially in Protestant circles, which we're a part of, it's, you know, it's pretty distant. We don't dig too far into past the 66. Yeah, that, that's what I really enjoyed the most out of doing the study. So I am with you on that one. 
but you already mentioned it, but the book of Jude, like we have angels, we got watchers, um, Sodom and Gomorrah reference, Michael, the archangel, the devil, Moses' body pops up in there, uh, Cain, Balaam, Korah, and some references to the book of Enoch. So this book, and it's, what is it, 25? Yeah, 25, I believe so. 25 verses of just jam-packed in there. It is. Um, normally, you read off the questions that we're going to go over. Can I read them this time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So we're looking at who is Jude, mm-hmm. which even in that, no, no, I'll just read through the question. Who is Jude? <laughs> Maybe this is why you ask the questions. <laughs> when was Jude written? Who are the quote unquote certain men that are mentioned? What was the purpose of Jude's letter? What's up with the debate about Moses' body? What's the way of Cain? What's the error of Balaam? What was Korah's rebellion? Enoch question mark? <laughs> That's my favorite one. <laughs> yeah. Enoch? <laughs> yeah, we're doing the whole shrug yeah, face, right? Yeah. So those are good questions. And looking at these, I think that if we take some time on them, uh, this is going to be a jam-packed episode. Yeah, so I'm assuming we're, this is probably going to be broken up into three, maybe four episodes. You're trying to go to four now? I don't know. It might. But it is the thing. So these are all small books. As we've mentioned many times, is that every book that we've covered so far has been extremely short, like one to four pages in your Bible kind of short. And there is so much packed into them that we can. So I think that between those questions that you have there, especially with the Enoch question mark mm-hmm. and, you know, really looking at those Old Testament occurrences that happen and really bringing those to light. Yeah, let's make it too. We get to decide. It's our podcast. It's our podcast. We're going to have fun with it. So (laughs) You guys uh, are along for the ride. A very fun ride. The breakdown for this forgotten book is uh, verse 1 through 2 is the greeting. 3 and 4 is the purpose for writing it. 5 through 16 is uh, judgment on the false teachers. 17 through 23 is the exhortation to preserve. And then 24 through 25 is the doxology, one of my favorite words in the Bible. That's a nice sounding word. It is. Which uh, doxology according to Merriam-Webster, is a usually liturgical expression of praise to God. Ah. So liturgy is just kind of like the rites in public worship, things that are... Oh. Yeah. So liturgy, if you're in a... Some churches have like a liturgical calendar that you follow, or the liturgy would be more churches that are closer to Catholicism, you know, mm-hmm. in the way that you practice things. Or you can even be a rite, like a baptismal liturgy. Oh. So different things to get put into practice. So just that... Um, liturgical praise at the end of the book i like that yeah i probably described it when there's other people they're just like that's not really what that meant it's like it's good enough for now it's good enough for now doxology is really cool uh but (laughs) there are just so many things that we were talking about there's so many challenges that come with the book of jude sorry i'm just laughing because you're like the rabbit trails and we're we're spending time on like but what's a doxology what's a liturgy it's like those aren't the rabbit trails that we have time for right now we're already going down them see that's the problem with the with this book that's just us not being well educated (laughs) on the language uh so speaking of challenges uh there are some challenges to the book of jude so the first one is the author and we'll get into that. The date of composition and the audience are a little uh, difficult to clarify who they're talking about. The tone is a little harsh in this letter, which is one of the things I really, really do enjoy. Uh, the sources quoted are obscure. Some of the references or allusions are not part of the accepted biblical text. And then the Jewish apocalyptic background is foreign to most of us, like we were talking about. Mm-hmm. We look at this and we're like, hey, what? And the people back then were like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Moses' body and Satan and Michael were just having this uh, debate about it. And they weren't having the same kind of problems looking Mm -hmm. at these things as we tend to in the modern time. Yeah. 
And one of the things I did like, though, was the when I was doing my study was the tone was a little too harsh. And, and that was the, what I really, really liked. So when I looked at it, uh, I read this and I thought it was pretty cool. It said the style of attack and defense was rough and profane back then. Judas insults his opponents 25 times in 25 verses. He's acting like a prosecuting uh, attorney determined to convict those accused whose unholy behavior demands punishment. So I, I really liked it. And I guess that was another reason why I really did like the book of Jude. Like he's just straight up like ungodly this, dreamers that. And we always talk about this where, and maybe, I don't know if I mentioned this here, but if we were to like define your preaching style, you're like the gospel, John. You kind of all over the place, but at the end it all makes sense and it comes together. It's just weird sometimes and you're, you're listening and trying to put the pieces together, but it all makes sense. And when you get to the very end, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I got all of what you were saying. And I was trying to figure out which one am I. And then I just realized I'm the book of Jude. Like my tone is a little harsh. I have a, a way of saying things that isn't always pleasant is what I've been told sometimes. But I really did like that. And reading through it, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm tracking with what Jude is saying here about these guys. I'm trying to think because I'm just like, yeah, I'll go with John. But you also remember I stood at the pulpit and I was like, I'll give you a hundred bucks to come up here and spit <laughs> in my face because yeah. that's what you're doing to Jesus. Yeah. So, yeah. You're also one of the prophets. That's what I've always went to. You, you have that tone to you. Just the good weird. illustrations. But uh, Eusebius, uh, he placed it among his disputed books, but he wrote that it was used publicly in most churches. I just went to go adjust my glasses and I'm not wearing them. So looking at that, that contention about whether Jude should be in the Bible. So when we look at this thing mm -hmm. about our canon coming together, and it's a really interesting thing that as far as you know, why were some books accepted and not others? And that's going to be a different podcast than this one. But one of the things that did come up was Jude, because it is a little bit out there for different reasons. But this was a time where First Enoch was kind of looked at more favorably. Mm -hmm. And because it quoted Enoch, it actually lended credibility to it because people were down with Enoch. And they're like, well, Jude's quoting Enoch. Jude's a pretty good book then. But then over time, it kind of turned the other way that once Jude got accepted, then they were like, well, Jude's quoting Enoch. Maybe Enoch should be okay because Jude is good, right? And it's quoted. So it's kind of an interesting back and forth between those two. Obviously, through, the, through time, we've ended up with Jude in our Bibles and not Enoch, unless you're Ethiopian, in which case you do have first Enoch in your Bible. There's also reference, and this is what I, uh, what I really liked, is that you do see, and we're going to cover it too, is there are a lot of parallels between Second Peter and Jude. Yeah, so when you're looking at that, um, out of those 25 verses, like you said, it seems that about 15 out of 25 have like a verse-to-verse -verse parallel as far as content-wise, just even as far as how they start off, like 2 Peter 1, 1 compared to Jude 1, 2 Peter 1, 2 compared to Jude 2, Jude 3 is by itself, and then you get into 2 Peter 2, 1 is with Jude 4. So yeah, and it just keeps going like mm -hmm. that. But only about 10 of the verses are highly unique to Jude. The rest of it really lines up with Second Peter, which I'm glad you brought that up because I feel like before we were talking, hey, if you're reading Haggai, you should really be looking at Ezra, Nehemiah, Zechariah. So I think that this is kind of the parallel book to Jude is to go and read Second Peter, kind of give you that full smackdown on the false teachers. <laughs> and what I really like about it is that the Old Testament does lend itself to more of um one prophet said something another prophet said, or they could retell what one prophet said. So there's more of a connection. The New Testament does seem to get a little bit more broken up on like, well, they quote Old Testament, but are they quoting each other? Are they talking about something Peter said or Paul said? And for me, when I saw that that was a thing here, that that made it nice to see that same, like we were saying, like Haggai and Zechariah, those books go together, read them together, uh, that you could read 
Second Peter and then read Jude, and it's almost like you're getting the same thing hit at you twice. But from different authors with mm-hmm. a kind of different perspective, it's not like you read through the Old Testament and you're like, hold up, I just read this. Yeah. It's like, no, it's because they're literally telling you the same thing twice. Yeah. This is a little different. Yeah, so there's that. Uh, let's get into question number one, or the first question. Let's see who's Jude. Who is Jude? Yeah, so there's a few things going with that. Um, you probably ended up, and most people may be aware of something. The tradition kind of says that Jude is Jesus' brother. Yeah. Which, even though that's the tradition brought down, which a lot of people agree with, like almost everything, there is not a scholarly consensus on that. So what are some other contenders that you came across? So I came across some very fun alternative ones. Okay. Um, and then we'll get back into looking at it as if he was Jesus' brother. Okay. Uh, but the contenders I got into were um, the Apostle Jude. So one of them I saw that, it, that they said it could be the Apostle Jude. And here's why. In the King James Version of the Bible, when uh, in Luke chapter 6, verse 16, when he's naming the 12, mm-hmm. uh, and this is, again, coming from Luke, who's studied and put a lot of work in, he says there was uh, Simon, whom he also named Peter and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon called Zealot, Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, who was also a traitor. So because of that, uh, one of them is that because he says the brother of James. Now, if you look in our other translations, like the NIV, it says Jude, the son of James. Mm-hmm. So there was just some some textual some textual differences between textual the, criticism, yeah, that, between uh, understanding yeah. the Greek and everything like that. So there, it's more likely meant to be the son of instead of the brother of. So that's why some people thought it was him because he starts off with Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus, a brother of James. So he goes into that himself. Uh, the other one I found that was really very interesting was um, the Apostle Thomas. Mm-hmm. So in the Acts of Thomas, he's identified as Didymus Jude or Judas Thomas, who is called Didymus. Now, the only problem with that is that most people will look at the Acts of Thomas and uh, based on its theological agenda and lack of support of being canon, really don't look at that as being... Interesting. Yeah, it's a, another, like you said, the <laughs> rabbit holes, the trails you could go down. Uh, one of the other ones, then, and there was no real like debate on like which one, but I thought it was funny, was the twin brother of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Because... No, that's going back to Thomas Didymus, Didymus meaning twin, and mm-hmm. yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. So there was that one, and then there was uh, Judas uh, that could have just been a, a bishop in Jerusalem. And again, one of the old historians, Eusebius, mentions a bishop in Jerusalem named Jude, uh, but for that one, there wouldn't have been enough time for his works to be regarded as authoritative throughout the church by the end of the second century. Right. And Judas was a popular name. Yes. There's a lot of those people in there with the same names. Yeah, kind of like with Obadiah, right? There's different Obadiahs in the Bible. It doesn't mean it's the same one. Just like Jesus, for as rare as it is in English-speaking worlds for people to call Jesus. I know a lot of my Mexican friends, Jesus, <laughs> you know what I mean? But uh, popular name back then. So lots of Judases could have been any of them. But I think uh, the tradition that's been passed down as a brother of Jesus. Yeah, I, I got two more. Oh, keep going. Okay. Yeah, yeah, there's two more. Another one was an unknown Judas whose brother uh, was also named James, but also equally as unknown. And then the last one was an unknown author just using the name of Jude for recognition. And uh, so this one was uh, kind of debunked in saying that if he was using the name of Judas, kind of using for recognition for himself, why not just say he was the brother of Jesus? That would give him more uh, authority and power to what he was trying to do there. Right. And again, when we're looking at some of those things, that's the like the pseudepigraphical works 
mm-hmm. right? Where you just attribute another name to it, then obviously the person didn't write it. We tend to have a lot more problem with that in the modern world. We're like, well, that's not the person that really wrote it. And that's a huge thing in circles is just like, we don't even know who wrote these books of the Bible. They're just putting names on. It's like, it was kind of more of an accepted thing back then. And people didn't have issues with it. It was understood. Yes, we know that person didn't write it. Yeah, I mean, But it's in like the spirit of the person you whose look name at, is on it. First uh, Samuel and second Samuel. Well, obviously, there was a chunk where Samuel wrote of Samuel, but Samuel dies in like First Samuel. So obviously, Second Samuel had to have been written by someone else. Um, and, and it's the same thing when you look at the first five books of the Bible, mm-hmm. where at the end of it, Moses dies. Well, someone wrote that last few chapters of that book. So yeah, I was just looking because in our Bibles, it's First and Second Samuel, but I'm thinking in Greek Bibles and maybe like the Orthodox, it's like First and Second Kingdoms. Which by name, we're like, oh, Samuel, yeah. his name's on it, so he wrote it. Yeah. But yeah, anyways, yeah. yes, like you're saying, even with Moses writing it and all this stuff, it's like, he really wrote about his own death and what happened after it. Huh? Yeah, yeah, he prophesied about that. I mean, he could have, he was a prophet, but I, I assume that was written by someone else. So yes, we, we get into a lot of stuff like that. Uh, but like we were saying, the most common or most agreed upon one is that it was written by Jude, the brother of Jesus. I'm with you on that. Which I do find interesting that he starts off Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James. And I wonder if, why didn't he just say that Jesus, like my brother, right? The brother mm. of Jesus. And I wonder if it does come down to where he sees himself eventually, because when Jesus was alive, he wasn't following him. But it, it, later in Acts, you get it mentioned that he was there in the upper room. And then you get in 1 Corinthians, it's implied that uh, the brothers of Jesus were missionaries. So I wonder if that change really is the reason why he just decided to downgrade and say a servant of Jesus and a brother of James. Which in that, and I don't want to get stuck on it, but looking at that he wasn't a follower, I know that he, well, according to those possibilities that you listed out, he could have maybe been one of the 12. But as far as him not being a follower, uh, with him ending up in the upper room, I know that he might not have been one of the 12, but I don't see reason to think that he couldn't have been part of the 70 or, you know, the 120 or whatever, other than the time when Jesus is preaching and his they, his family goes to try and get him and they're like, sorry, <laughs> he's yeah. kind of out of his mind. So that's where you get that, oh, his family wasn't really on board. But I don't know. I tend to, th- I guess because we say the same thing with James, right? Mm-hmm. In the book of James, like, oh, it was Jesus's brother, but he wasn't a believer at the time. But then he came and then he became one of the leaders in the church. And maybe a lot of that's just passed down through tradition as well. Just when I look at the text, it's like, well, there's nothing that says that he wasn't, just not that he might not have been the closest. And, and that's where I, I, I would agree with you that maybe the tradition that we've get, gotten has uh, led us to think some of those thoughts, but we don't really know at one point he turned. Because right. yes, there is the part where they're like, yeah, our brother's a little crazy. Let's get him and bring him in. Like they weren't believing at that point. That's right, clearly right. referenced at that point. But at what point did they convert or start understanding? I mean, it could have been at the cross. It could have been any moment uh, after that, that there was a change in their uh, belief in him. But I hear what you're saying as far as like, why wouldn't he just claim himself to be that person? And you see a thing kind of with the humility as far as how people name themselves. We tend to think that, again, if John wrote the book of John and he was referencing himself as the beloved disciple, a lot of people think that, but talking almost in like the third person mm-hmm. about this other disciple. Uh, we also see that with Paul when he talks about I know a guy that went to the third heavens and he wouldn't be able to tell you even if he could, but taking more of just that humble route of like, I'm not going to claim that for me. Yeah. So I can see that as a possibility. So again, the kind of these cultural contextual ways of trying to understand a book as far as like, well, who wrote it? Why wouldn't he put Jesus? Wouldn't that prove the point? It's like, it's not really how they talked back then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If anything, he would have said, uh, 
the more common way, and we saw it a lot more in some of the Old Testament books, was Jude, the son of Joseph, right? The, a more common way mm, of introducing themselves was right. like referencing who their father was. Uh, so again, why landing on a brother of James? At least that's the NIV translation, a brother of James, kind of uh, does make you think about why he worded that way. And I'm sure we'll get into that as we get more into like the practical side of things. But I did have that there were some challenges to the idea of him being the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, one of them is that the Greek vocabulary and literary style are considered too good to have been written by an uneducated son of a carpenter from Galilee. But again, we don't know Jude's life. We don't know his history. He could have been traveling. He could have learned Greek. I read somewhere, and I thought it was pretty cool, it said that growing up in Nazareth, he uh, likely had contact with people by a nearby Roman city, and so he could have uh, grown up speaking Greek as a second language or even a third one. Also, he could have just had someone, like a scribe, assist him and translate it out that way. Which, and that, that's a common thing. We tend to think of, oh, I'm writing a letter, so I'm going to sit down and write a letter or a text or an email, however, the multitude of ways that we can do it. But back then, oh, the name of what it is isn't coming to my mind, but it was a professional job that you would hire people to write mm -hmm. letters and you would sit there and they would write the thing for you and you could talk about, hey, I'm going to tell you the idea. And then they would say, okay, can I word it like this or whatever? And they'd write that thing down. That's where it's thought that even Paul used that. That's where it, part of Paul's letter, he's like, look, I'm writing to you in my own hand. Look at my big old letters. You know what I mean? So yeah, if you have, it's the same thing. <laughs> what do we call that? Like a ghostwriter today? Yeah, ghostwriter or just you're helping someone. Hey, man, I got to write this email. Can you look at it? Yeah. <laughs> Can you help me with this? Right? We know what that's like. And to be like, well, the writing is too good for the son of a carpenter. It's like he went to someone who could speak good. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. Uh, I do it a lot too with uh, when I write something up, I'll take it to Justine and I'm like, hey, I need this proofread. Yeah, exactly. Like, and so she'll be like, okay, let me. And it's really weird sometimes because it'll be like the smallest paragraph and she's sitting there for like 20 minutes and I'm like, is my grammar that bad? Like, is it that horrible? And then I get it back and I was like, I don't see much of a change, but, you know, she's rereading it right. to make it make uh, a little more sense than my, um, I write the way I talk sometimes. <laughs> so yes, that, that could be the one thing. The other challenge that I saw was, again, we already talked about it. Why didn't he claim to be the brother of Jesus instead of James? So again, looking at that first question, I think most people landing and I would see with where I'm at and what I've studied that, yeah, he's more than likely this is Jude, the brother of Jesus, who was mentioned in the Gospel of Mark and Matthew and then Acts. I'm with you. All right. Welcome back to the Heated Debate for the Body of Moses. I'm your moderator, Remy from YCF Kids News. Devil, why do you feel like you should have the body of Moses? Well, the body is mine. Because I am the master of material things. All that is in this world belongs to me. And so also does the body of this murderer Moses. He killed a man in cold blood and hid him in the sand. No amount of good can save him from me. Michael the Archangel, what is your reply to that? The Lord rebuke you. Devil, isn't it true that you want to use the body of Moses as an idol for the children of Israel? No, that is a lie, and I wouldn't know a thing or two about lies. All I simply intend to do is bring it down to the people and let them do what they desire to do. Trust me. 
Michael the Archangel. What do you have to say about that? The Lord rebuke you. This debate is intensifying. We'll be back with more after this. Question number two. We're we're rolling through these real quick, real quick. Like, <laughs> uh, when was Jude written? Yeah. Um. For me, looking at things, there's it's not like there's the specific dates on things, but scholars tend to look at between the years fifty to one ten A.D. A lot of people favor a little bit earlier because there was the destruction of the temple in seventy A.D. And that's kind of how. A lot of times when we're looking at biblical books as far as, hey, they didn't really mention anything about that, or that's kind of a big deal, or, you know, what kind of would have happened after that. But I know a lot of people might want to place it more in the 50s or the 60s, as opposed to after 70. But just because it's a big deal, it doesn't mean that it has to make its way into the letter, which is where you give the allowance up till maybe like around 110. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of where you landed with stuff? Yeah, yeah, that's what I I got too. And I I found this, and I thought it was pretty interesting to go along with it, was... um, the earliest manuscript of Jude is the papyrus P72 located in the Bondermeer collection. Mm. And the collection dated to around the 3rd century. And that also contained 1st and 2nd Peter, the writings of Clement of Alexander, the writings of Origen, the writings of Tertullian, and Muratorian canon. So They have names like me. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, when I was looking at my notes, I was like, why do I have Murdoch written down there? Uh, but... Yeah, uh, so th- I thought that was pretty cool that it was uh, that's the earliest manuscript that was found was dated to that time. Yeah, so looking at those things, and there are people who um, want to push the date even further. Uh, Bart Ehrman, who is a biblical scholar, one who probably doesn't ascribe to many people who I can think of who's listening to this <laughs> podcast. Uh, he definitely has a different approach to things, but he's well-respected within stuff. Uh, he's thinking that it's like second half of the second century. So like past 150, 80, uh, just because of different terminology that's in there and similar to, you know, different pastoral epistles that it's kind of uncommon in that earlier time. So, yeah, I saw that too. Uh, and it went down to the, um, looking at, I guess what our third question would be. Um, uh, but the idea of that it was, um, him coming against Gnosticism, mm-hmm. which does get kind of categorized later, not so much during this time, but a little bit after that. Yeah, and Gnosticism, I mean, you get that in uh, John's epistles, right? That he's really coming against Gnosticism. It's a really big deal. Yeah. Within the early churches, it's just that creeping. You, you kind of have uh, the Judaizers on one side and the Gnosticism on the other side. So, yeah, the different, um, just as far as being called out for different teaching, right? False teaching and whatnot. Those kind of tend to be groups that are called out. Yeah, I, I can see that kind of lending to a later one. But either way, this is not really a contested book. It's one that we know it's around this time. The church has been using it since that time. It's been agreed upon, and it's part of the canon for a reason. So we can take it for what it is and dig into, well, what's in this thing? Yeah. All right. This is going to be the fun part now. Question number three, who are these certain men mentioned? So my uh, translation does have certain men. Some of the other translations say others. That's why I phrase it around certain men there. And when I looked at it, really, there's no uh, actual identification is given for these people. It doesn't say who they are, what group, what clique, or anything like that that's coming in. Even where you look at in Revelation where uh, John says, uh, gives like almost a kind of a terminology to a woman who's in the church, like this, you let this Jezebel inside. Mm-hmm. Um, so there isn't any of that done. So who they, they are is really unknown, other than, than what they are doing is just really false teachers. I can tell you who they are. It says in verse 4, 
For certain men have crept in among you, unnoticed, ungodly ones, who were designated long ago for condemnation. They turn the grace of our God into a license for immorality, and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. That's who they are. There are ungodly people who have crept into the church. So that's where I was getting at, is that he doesn't say who exactly, like even in Paul, where he'll like... Judaizer, Judaizer, Judaizer. Paul will like name people. uh, Oh yeah, even by name, yeah. He straight up name drop. Well, which one? uh, Was it Timothy we were looking at? And he was like, and -and so-and-so, was it uh, the blacksmith Alexander or someone like that has done me great harm and like just straight up called him out on it. Jude isn't doing that. And I think which is really interesting and you kind of brought up is he's not really calling who out, but he's calling the characteristics of them out. And he really hits on that. So he, uh, he calls them out because they rejected all moral authority. Um, they believed that they were free to, to use their own standards to determine what behavior was correct for them. So basically, these people were defining what was good. And we can see going through the Bible that when you start defining what's good by your own standards, that usually tends to lead to bad. Yeah, um, they do what's right in their own eyes is kind of the way that that gets termed quite a bit. And it, that leads up to not good things. Yeah, I think of like in Exodus, right? So they, the Israelites are growing and multiplying and, and a bunch of them are popping up. And so Pharaoh says, we got to kill all the, the males. So if a boy is born, uh, the nurse, you kill it right then and there. And everyone was like, yeah, makes sense. You know, like they were literally defining what was good for them by their own terms and standards. And so they all saw that as a good thing for them. Uh, but we all know that killing a baby is not a good thing. Yeah. I wasn't expecting for you to use that as the example. So I'm just sitting there like, yeah, that's, that's true. It's one of the ones I've learned recently. That's why. Um, the other thing is that uh, they could live any way they wanted without sinning. And they believed they no longer had to obey laws in order to be saved or lead a moral life. So Really, Jude's issue wasn't really their false beliefs, but they were part of the church and possibly even teachers. So they had these false beliefs. They thought this way. And the issue that he had with these certain men wasn't that they thought this way, but they thought this way and brought it inside of the church. Right. And I think that when you're looking at that, as as far as he didn't name people by name, so in giving this description, um, I don't think he's trying to send people out on like the witch hunt. Like, hey, is there anybody in here who looks like this? But by giving the description, it is kind of the, hey, who does this apply to? Because that's the person I'm talking about. But later on in verses uh, 12 and 13, you have him saying that these men are hidden reefs in your love feasts, shamelessly feasting with you, but shepherding only themselves. They're clouds without water, carried along by the wind, fruitless trees in autumn, twice dead after being uprooted. They're wild waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. So just that fact, they're in there, they're showing up to your feasts, right? These love feasts, that's like communion turned up to the max. They're coming together, rich, poor, anybody come in, we're going to break bread, we're going to celebrate Jesus together, we're going to celebrate this life together that we have. And these people that just with no shame, because they're there for themselves and their own selfishness and to exploit the people around them. Mm -hmm. And they're coming in and feasting with everyone. And even when it says shepherding, so it's like, like you were saying, teacher, pastor role, these, these, you know, more higher up roles, but they're only in it for them. Clouds without water carried along by the wind. You, you picture this is a much more agricultural society other than living in Southern California. It's like, I hope the truck brings our food down. <laughs> I hope it rained wherever the food was grown, right? But um, for them, like, yeah, if you're like, man, we really need rain, which I guess that applies to everybody even till today. Clouds are moving in, but nothing's in them. It's kind of like if you have these people like, man, we really need these Christian godly people to be coming in and like, it's not in them. Mm-hmm. I, I like uh, the it, appearance. 
the my translation has it as a uh, blemishes at your love feast. Mm. And so uh, when I really look at that, so a blemish at your love feast would be like uh, if there was a sacrifice being done, you don't want something of blemish, right? You don't want it being something that tarnishes it. And these people were coming in and tarnishing that. And then the eating with you without the slightest qualm shepherds who feed only themselves. And I really, that was one that I thought, man, a shepherd who only takes care of themselves. And who warned about shepherds who only took care of themselves? They were called the hirings, right? That was what Jesus said. They weren't the real shepherd. They were just the people who were hired to take care of the sheep. And they don't care about the sheep themselves in general. They're just there. Especially, oh, the wolf comes? Yeah. I'm out of here. Yeah, like deuces. <laughs> Good luck, sheep. I've been reading uh, by Philip Keller, his book on Psalm 23, mm-hmm. because he was a shepherd. And hey, you just got that at the bookstore, huh? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I've been reading it. And what's really cool is what he actually talks about. So just the one passage to prove this kind of point about what a shepherd should look like was that the, the section where he says, he takes me to green pastures. He said, so a lot of sheep are in actual areas where there's not green pastures all around. It's warm, dry weather. And that's where sheep actually thrive better because parasites are, uh, they don't live really in or survive in that kind of temperature. So in order for there to be green pasture, the shepherd has to go out there, till the soil, take out any rocks or anything that shouldn't be in there, give the right nutrients to the soil, right? Like actually baby the soil, take care of the soil, then plant the seed, water and tend to it to make sure that there is a green pasture. There's a lot of behind the scenes work done by this shepherd that the sheep has no idea. He's just out there, like, comes in and grazes on it. And it's like, this is cool. I'm glad this was here. <laughs> but a shepherd who's feeding only on himself isn't going to do that. He's not going to tend to the green pastures. He's not going to make sure that the sheep's taken care of. That's, that was really what I liked about that little passage there because it just sparked that memory. Yeah, which when you're looking at it from that perspective, and I like that you brought out blemish, but for mine, looking at the hidden reef, Mm -hmm. like hidden reef, and if you look at that, it's like, well, what's the danger of a hidden reef? You're out on the ocean, and that rock that you can't see just ripped your ship open. You've been shipwrecked. And when you're looking at that within the church, and just like, man, church, like you're on this thing, and this hidden reef just like will shipwreck you. Which is really cool if you think about it, like the church is a place of love, like a love feast, right? We are a place where love is and something, this hidden thing that we don't see. And now there's division, this quarreling. Yeah, right. Because about selfishness. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. not willing to submit to you. Mm-hmm. So then it's not just like, oh, I'm going to get my own way by myself. I'm going to start to like bring people in so that I can make sure I get my way. And you even get the idea of like, I'm not willing to submit to you. And then someone else is like, you know, I've always felt that way too. I'm not willing to, you know, it kind of stirs up. Right, right, right. We're not directing ourselves towards the teachings of Christ and how to live Mm -hmm. in the spirit. Rather, it's like it's stirring up that flesh part, right? Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, in verse 15, he calls them ungodly. And it's like three times. He's like, let me pull up my Bible so I could get it. Uh, To judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in all the ungodly ways and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him and it's it's just like ungodly 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 and he constantly keeps going back to that and there that right there i know that's a later question but he was quoting first enoch right there uh, i think that's first enoch 1 verse 9 about the ungodly 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 but we see him bringing it up here in this place yeah so again he's just bringing that up and then he calls them dreamers in verse 8 and and again uh in the very same way these dreamers pollute their own bodies and uh one of the things that i read was that he calls them dreamers because they were relaying they were relying on dreams or visions that they claimed to be prophetic so they would use these dreams as excuses to be immoral or do what they were doing and then grumblers fault finders people that weren't happy with god's plan 
or will for the lies. They would find fault in God's plan, and they didn't want to help others or the faith, and they just simply criticized everything. And so this is the list that we just went through, and I don't think we touched all of them, of what he's calling these other people. Yeah, and I know that we're going to have more of the reflection episode in a couple episodes, but just when I hear that, like, I have to say it right now, because some things are just timely. Think about the church that you're in. Think about that this letter was being passed around for people to be made aware of things. And again, if people fit this description, if you're around people who are just grumbling about things, who aren't really submitting to the spirit and the love and the forgiveness and holiness and all of these things, but you're seeing things, and if they're trying to bring you in with it, be aware. That's what this letter is saying. Exactly. Be aware of these people. Yeah. So I know that a bit of application is coming in a couple episodes, but I have to say it now because you're going to go to church on Sunday. <laughs> be aware. Not that you need to go out and try to find people, but just be aware. Yeah. And I, I think of it as we get into the next one, like that is the purpose of what Jude's trying to do here is be aware of these things. That's why the who isn't as important as how. How do they live? How do they act? How do they... How do they reflect? How do they produce fruit, right? Their fruit is no good. And that's the one thing we're always called to check out, like the fruit. Test them by their fruit. And if they don't have that, then that's what we go, okay, there's something different. That This is something I need to be alert about. And really getting into all of his examples that he used, um, what he's really doing even with that as he's going through like all the stuff that we talked about, Israel, Sodom, all the way down to Enoch and everything, is that false teachers have always been there. It wasn't an issue of that day and age. It happened in Moses' time. It happened in the garden. The snake came up and was a false teacher in a sense. And it even happened in Jesus' time and it happened afterwards. And it's happening today. There are, there are false teachers out there who are coming in, which kind of makes me think about, uh, there's, there are those YouTube channels. They're like the, I call them the false teacher hunters. Oh, I call them heresy hunters. Heresy hunters. <laughs> and they're like legitimately just naming out pastors and preachers and teachers. No one's safe. Everyone is on those lists. Yeah, like everybody. Your favorite pastor is going to be on that list. Um, and I, at first when I was watching them, um, I thought, yeah, we need to call them out like that. But then as I started looking at the way it was also done, it was almost, it was angry, which I get why they should be angry, but it wasn't loving. And, and the way Jude approaches it even here is like, take pity on them or try to convert them back over. That's the, some of the words he uses is like, when we get into that part is like, yeah, we should have pity on these people, but not clearly naming them out is what I liked. And that's what I really saw as something that, you know, do we have to name drop everybody or can we just say, here's the characteristics, here's the fruits, and here's what it looks like. Yeah, I'm going to go as far as to say a lot of those people on YouTube, uh, at this point with the way it's done, you're doing it for views mm -hmm. and shock value. Yeah. And it's almost becoming this thing. You're doing it for you at that point. Yeah. Like you have become the person that does that. And Yes, we need to be aware. We need to call out. We need to be able to protect others, you know, and make people aware of things. But at the same time, like, also supposed to be loving and preaching the gospel. And those things are more important. I don't want to get stuck on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we look at this. This is the purpose of it. Um, to me, this, his letter reads like a sermon with illustrations and a call to action. So, like, I think a lot of times we can look at some of the letters almost like a message being preached by the people. So wherever church this was taken to or congregation, they would read it as if Jude was actually the one speaking it. Right, right. Or same thing with Paul, that this was read as if Paul was saying it, like if he was there, if his presence was there. So this, this has that same kind of vibe to it. Uh, but Jude starts off uh, his letter. He writes a message and he says, I'm, I'm, a, I'm here to write you guys about salvation. That's what I was going to do. But the Spirit came in and led 
and the spirit changed my mind to warn you about false teaching and all the stuff that was happening. And I really dropped in on that word led. Like that to me was, it stood out so much that he was going to like, hey, I was going to do this. And then all of a sudden the spirit took over and said, no, you got to do that. Sorry, it's just making me laugh because it just struck the way that you, I didn't pay that much attention to that verse. Mm -hmm. uh, that's verse three for anybody who was wanting to look at it. But it just made me think that that sermon that I brought up earlier, I was like, hey, you know, if you want this, spit in my face, do whatever. And I was full of other illustrations as well. Um, you can put the YouTube link for that in the show notes if you want. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> um, but that title of my sermon for that was the gospel. Yeah. <laughs> if you remember, so it's like, hey, I'm coming to talk to you <laughs> yeah, about yeah, salvation, yeah. but we need to talk about these other That's things right. that are going on. Yeah. Because honestly, it's just like, because it's the danger of false teaching and people moving in is that if you start going with that, it does need to get called out. And sometimes calling out a thing to really make it plain and apparent, you need to make it plain and apparent. Yeah, exactly. That we can start off wanting to talk about it, salvation, but if we don't address the other issues in the room, then it's just almost not going to be as effective. Yeah, I think uh, I used to listen to a lot of Paul Washer. I've probably listened to almost everything that was available online at, at a certain point. And I remember hearing him at a conference one time. He's like, so I'm here at this marriage conference. I believe it's a marriage conference. And they wanted me to talk about this thing. That's fantastic. But honestly, in my estimation of where our culture is at, I can't talk about this. So I need to lay the foundation with this. Mm -hmm. Or just like, first things first. Yeah. Again, we're looking at this. The primary purpose was to warn against these false teachers. And like I said earlier, he shows that false teaching is nothing new. It happened before in the community of God's people. It happens in the spiritual realm. Um, and the church should always be on guard for false teachers, people coming in and distorting the truth. So th I have a few more things with the purpose. Uh, I'll just run through these really quick. Um, he addresses the following questions. Whether the church should change with the times to take advantage of the most modern view of what it means to be a Christian or remain faithful to the gospel. What the true definition of faith is in the changing world how the church could defend itself from distorted message that threatened to corrupt it. So when we look at this, this is what Jude's purpose is doing. He's like, hey, uh, where should the church stand when modern view comes in and things try to change it and shake it up and saying, here's a new revelation uh, from God. Where do we stand when that stuff comes in? Um, what's the true definition of faith in a world that changes the definition of faith constantly? And then how does the church defend itself when, when things are coming in and trying to corrupt it? Um, the purpose, because there was a group of false teachers coming in, wrecking havoc uh, in that congregation, and Jude was like, this needs to stop. This is unhealthy for you guys. Yeah, that sums it up. It's basically like false teachers, and I'm going to use a lot of really interesting ways to explain that to you. Yeah, a really lot of interesting ways. Uh, so many fun, interesting ways, which I don't think we're going to get to in this episode, So, um, because if we even started on one of them, I don't know if we'll have enough time. Yeah, so maybe this first episode is more of a intro to the book of Jude. Yeah, Jude 101. Yeah, basically. Uh, so the next one, we'll get into verse 5 through 6, and or 5 down to the rest of it, if we can try to accomplish that. I don't think we are. I, I think stemming from here, what we'll, we will do after this, or maybe in between some of the episodes, the Enoch episode, mm -hmm. um, maybe even touch on a little bit. I think I could do it in one of the episodes, what the assumptions of Moses and the Testament of Moses. That's a really cool, interesting and crazy story and book to, uh, to read and to know about. But I, I really like the book of Jude so far. It's helped me just really look at this compacted 25 verses of where Jude was coming from. It was like, hey, who am I? You know what? It doesn't matter. I don't need to say I'm the brother of Jesus. I'll just say I'm a brother of James. What James? Who cares? What you need to know is that there are people coming in 
they're distorting the gospel, the message that was given to you by the apostles, and that needs to stop. They could go out and do that wherever they want, but inside this place, this holy place where you guys congregate, that can't be happening. And I really enjoyed the study of it so far. Likewise. So, man, all these questions, looking at the book of Enoch, Balaam, Korah. What else we have? Oh, yeah. The, what happened to Moses' body? All that stuff. Sodom and Gomorrah. Honestly, Sodom and Gomorrah, yeah. And the city of the plains. In between this episode and the next one comes out, you listening, go read up on it. So when we get into it, you could see what we're talking about. So um, Balaam's an interesting story in itself. Yep. Yeah. Dude's donkey talked. I mean, we're we got to have that conversation. Yeah, I want to talk about a false prophet. That dude was like a pagan prophet that <laughs> yeah. was hired on to go and curse God's people. And God's like, nope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun times. All right, let's wrap this one up. I am Chris. I'm Yurdu. We are your church friends. Thanks for listening. Habakkuk. Nahum. Obadiah. Jude. Philemon. Haggai. Amen.